The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello. Welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I am the host for this podcast. My husband, Steve Siegel, is the producer of the podcast. Just a reminder to please subscribe to podcast to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a good review because then when people are searching out podcasts on the subject of addiction, we come up and we put out a lot of things that can help people that are suffering through this. Also check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to that. Give our videos a thumbs up once again so that people can find us. And also if you ring the bell, you will get notified every time we put up a new episode. Today's episode is episode number 289. And today we have a gentleman named Alex Sorotkin. Alex is an author and Alex lost a child to addiction. He wrote a novel called The Long Desert Road, and his daughter actually helped him with that. But unfortunately, during the pandemic, she died of an overdose. So let's talk to Alex and hear more about his story. Alex Sorotkin, am I saying that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. Very okay. good. Alex Sorotkin, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for being willing to share your story, but also the story of your daughter. So thank you. Thank you. It's an honor and a privilege to be here. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Absolutely. So give us just your background, just roughly, you know, where you grew up, what your childhood was like. And lead us up um, to Stephanie. I grew, I grew, yes, absolutely. I, I grew up uh, in a in an affluent uh, uh, New York uh, suburb in Long Island it's called Roslyn. Um, well-to-do parents. It's basically a it's 98% white and, and Jewish. And um, I don't know that we were, we lived in a privileged household, I would say, um, but we weren't spoiled. And I worked very hard and I was very diligent and did well in school. And ultimately went to an Ivy League school. I went to UPenn in Philadelphia. And then not knowing what to do necessarily, I went to law school, went to Boston College Law School and became a lawyer for eight or nine years I practiced and then went into business. And that was, I graduated in law school in 1980. So many, many decades ago, um, and, but I'm still in business now. and you know, many different businesses. And it's been a different... I was going to ask you what your businesses were, but it's fine. Uh, Different (laughs) businesses. So right now it's uh, an insurance, a life insurance related business. Um, But far afield from the discussion that we're going to have here, I hope. Hmm. Okay, fair enough. Uh, So when did you marry then and adopt two little girls? When did that happen? uh, Well, uh, I married and now she's my ex. I would call her Cheryl just for um, privacy reasons. It's not her real name, but I married Cheryl probably in 1990, I'm guessing 1991 or 1992. Um, We both wanted to have children and um, uh, she was unable to. So we went through the IVF procedure and we went went through that whole hog and that didn't work. So in an instant, we talked about adoption. It didn't bother me at all. It was, it, I was all in. She was all in. And uh, she did most of the work. Cheryl um, did a good job. And 
advertised. It was an open, not an open, it was a closed adoption. We hired an attorney, uh, put advertisements in like USA Today. Um, and uh, two children were actually uh, offered to us. And so we decided if they both would come through, then we would take both of them. Usually these things don't work out and you end up having to do it all over again. As it turns out, both of them came through. Uh, Stephanie, whom we'll be talking about, I'm sure, uh, was born on January 7, uh, 14th, uh, 94. Um, Julie, also not her real name, uh, was born three days later. Coincidentally, they were both due and they arrived in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. And so we were there for the births, pretty much. Um, that's like having was, twins, Alex. That's like all of a like, sudden you like had twin twins. little girls. Yeah, yeah. It was an instant family. Very scary. I didn't know what I was getting into. Um, uh, and that's what I it understand. Goes. Yes. Uh, so it was uh, it was a grand old time um, for the first three years. Um, we moved. You know, we lived in northern New Jersey in a town called Upper Saddle River. Um, first three years were what I would characterize as normal. The stories that I remember are, you know, the little kids. And we also had dogs then. We had two Vichlas, two mid-sized hunting dogs. Um, and I remember the two girls, walk, you know, running, um, crawling on the carpet. They had their binkies in their mouth. Uh, <laughs> they would, um, you know, instantaneously uh, like switch, decide to switch binkies between their mouths. It would be like a saliva exchange. Sometimes <laughs> they'd do it with the dogs. So, you know, it's just I'm sort of a painting a picture of a normal, weird family, uh, but <laughs> lots of fun for the first, you know, three years. Um, and then what happened? Well, then things became a little more difficult. Stephanie uh, there's Stephanie, who's three years old, three days older than Julie. Um, Stephanie started exhibiting signs of sort of high emotion and anxiety at the age of three. So, for instance, weird things that you would never expect out of a three-year-old, um, putting socks on her feet, as an example. She, if the, if the socks were not positioned on her feet just precisely correctly, and who knows what that meant? Even then, I mean, you didn't know. Uh, you would keep trying to arrange it, but she was hysterical and it could last for 20 minutes or a half an hour trying to get her socks on her feet. Sort of bizarre behavior uh, like that. Um, things became, you know, sort of worse after that. Um, and, and she was difficult. I mean, she was a beautiful child. In fact, would you like to see a picture of Stephanie? Sure. Uh, this is, and I would like to say, by the way, um, and maybe this is not by your choice, but this is my choice. I, I don't like, I'm going to tell the story about my daughter, but I want your audience to understand that my daughter ultimately died. Right. She died from a drug overdose in, and I think, I hope that's okay to say now. That's she, fine. She, she died uh, in uh, October 2nd of 2020, in, the, in basically the middle of in the start of the pandemic. This is what she looked like, and she was a beautiful girl. This is what she looked like basically when she passed away. Okay. 
um, and she was gorgeous inside and out. Um, and it's obviously a little difficult to talk about this, but let's get over it. Uh, for okay, now. so she's three years old, Alex, and so she's back to, back to three years. Bit old. out of control. Okay. Yes. So she has other problems as as a three year old. She's got uh, coordination problems. She has problems with her speech, uh, spatial issues. Uh, she doesn't like going fast in a car. Later on, I would take her. You know, when she was a teenager, I try to take her skiing. That was a disaster because she couldn't handle the speed. So she had all these underlying issues. Um, to my uh, wife at the time, my wife's credit, she did an excellent job. I, I was working a good part of the time. We were doing well. Thank God money wasn't that much of an issue. I cannot imagine if money was an issue, how difficult it would be. And I'm sure some people uh, even listening would be in that position. I, I just can't imagine. It was difficult enough having the, the wherewithal to handle some of these things. And my wife did an excellent job. She got you know, special equipment to try to handle the spatial issues. She uh, took her to early therapy. Uh, she did what absolutely could could be done. But things didn't progress that that well. Uh, she entered uh, that is Stephanie entered, you know, kindergarten and, and first grade uh, eventually. And, you know, she didn't do well in school. She didn't have uh, good interpersonal skills. She didn't enjoy school. She didn't know how to learn. Eventually, you know, she was ADHD, we thought. Eventually, a long time later, I guess, sometime in elementary school, she was classified. Dan Carity, if I'm being honest, is the new powerful podcast to listen to. Dan is a globetrotting television personality, a choreographer to stars like Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake, a loving husband and father, and a man struggling with addiction and anxiety. On his podcast, he shares ugly truths from his life in front of and away from the camera, and those of his courageous guests as well, from the world of entertainment, sports, media, and medicine, such as NFL player Ryan Leaf, pioneer DJ Don Diablo, actor and comedian Jamie Kennedy, and many more. So check out his new podcast, Dan Carity, If I'm Being Honest, on Spotify, Apple, and Google, or go to his website, www.dancarity.com. That's www.dancarity.com. So it was extremely difficult for her to recognize and, and accept the fact that she was different and she, you know, obviously had self-esteem issues and that only perpetuated a sort of a negative feeling in her and in the family. I mean, it was very stressful. Alex, um, did did the schools recommend that she go on some sort of medication? Not at that time. No. No. Okay. No. And to be honest, my wife was of the of the feeling that she wasn't a big believer in medication. I, I think it was too. You know, in in as a as an elementary school person, it wasn't considered. But okay. later on, when she was in middle school, I certainly, I mean, we discussed it. We probably argued about it. Um, I was, you know, I'm no expert. I'm no medical expert. So it was, you know, difficult to me to have standing to make these arguments. And my wife was very insistent that it wasn't necessary and that she didn't believe in them 
for many good reasons, I'm sure. Understood. Alex, just out of curiosity, I'm sure that your wife checked it out, but did she have underlying physical issues, like actual, I don't know, something wrong physically that can sometimes then manifest itself emotionally and mentally? Uh, to be honest, I don't remember checking that out, but okay. she did not. Okay. She, she was healthy physically. Okay. She was, I would say, perfectly healthy physically. It was all you know biochemical mentally yeah yeah and it was all in her in our head Mm -hmm. and you know we learned more things as time progressed got it okay so she's in middle school now so take us keep keep going now that i've interrupted you so she's in middle school um eventually uh and by the way my other daughter is doing fine as it ha- as it happens, and thankfully, and and today, uh, Julie recently gave birth to a beautiful boy. Oh, congratulations! She has a beautiful job. She's got a great husband. So so Julie, who has survived, has done remarkably well. And so I, I, you know, you talk about the the uh, concept of nurture versus nature. We were the perfect sort of experiment in that regard. In that we would say that you know, uh, nature wins over nurture because we nurtured them, as you said, up front, we raised them as twins. They were three days apart and we didn't differ in how we raised them. But one turned out completely different from the other. I mean, completely. Yep. Uh, Well, congratulations, Grandpa. There you go. I'm going to put that in there. Thank Mm. you much. (laughs) Um, So uh, Stephanie continued to have problems and issues in in uh, elementary school and so we so we we were doing okay and we sent her to a very nurturing private school which was maybe an, a, a mile away and um and she was there i would say loosely amongst her peers people other children who had emotional issues as well uh, and it wasn't absolute absolutely manifest i mean y- you couldn't tell stephanie had emotional issues on the surface but we knew that they that a lot of them had emotional issues. Ironically and parenthetically, I would say that a lot of the parents, um, uh, first of all, I would say a lot of the children seem to be adopted, and that's not a scientific comment. That's just you know anecdotal. And by the same token, a lot of the parents were having issues amongst themselves. Mm. Anyway, Stephanie um, did well in this school. Uh, because I think there was the pressure was off. There was less stress on performing academically. And she was, you know, not um, unintelligent, but she was not good academically in school. She, you know, I would always say that Stephanie was very streetwise and had a lot of common sense in a way, other than what turned out to be, you know, her addiction issues and, and other par- more paramount issues. But deep down, she was a smart little girl, mm-hmm. if that could be reconciled somehow. Yep. No, nope. <laughs> I get it. Okay. As some uh, kids who are very, very intelligent don't do well in school. Sometimes it can be that the school isn't working with them fast enough, or sometimes the school is working with them too fast. It's, you know, she sounds like, right. as they call them, special needs. Doesn't mean she okay. was stupid. No. So anyway, I mentioned that other uh, parents were having issues and 
as it turns out, um, my wife and I were also having issues. It was just a lot of stress in the family. I think there was a lot of stress on my wife, especially. And um, I don't have to go into the details, but the stress sort of um, forced us into therapy. Uh, we went, we were in therapy. We were in individualized therapy with multiple therapists. We were in group therapy over a period of five years, I would say, maybe longer. And um, we gave it our all. Uh, I don't have to go into the gory details, but um, eventually I decided that I had to become happy and leave because I was, aside from the stress in the family, I was just not happy with the relationship. Um, and nor was she, I believe, but she could, if you ever interview her, she could speak for herself. Fair enough. Um, so when did, it, when well, did Stephanie get introduced to drugs? And maybe you're almost there, but I was just curious as to when she started doing drugs. Eventually, uh, to cut to the chase, eventually, um, Cheryl, uh, we, we split and we divorced and it was not an amicable divorce. Eventually she, um, my ex decided to move back to, to be with her parents who were then living in Boca Raton, Florida. And I understand that you guys live in Florida. Is that correct? Correct. Would you Tampa say Bay. where? Tampa Bay. Or, Tampa Bay. Okay. Yeah. On the other side. Um, so my impression that I've learned about Southeast Florida, at least at that time, and I can't speak about this particular time, but then Southeast Florida was known as sort of the rehab capital of the world. And it was also, in my opinion, and I'll get, we'll back, get back into this, sort of the drug capital of the world. So she moved with the kids against my, not my will. I, I, they all wanted to move and get a change in scenery, I think. And so I didn't fight it, but I wasn't happy about it because I wasn't with them. Um, anyway, it's at this point that Stephanie tells me later that she started on pills. Uh, I don't know what kind of pills, um, but this is what she said. She was also you know, drinking, you know, she was on the beach. Uh, she was, uh, I'm sure doing, uh, you know, smoking weed. Um, but she Alex, what did, year are we talking about? Uh, year, I don't know, but she's probably at the age of 15. The reason why so, I ask is because Florida was number one in pill mills for a period of time. I don't know if that well, was the, when the she year started would be pills. the 15 is 94, okay. uh, 2000, 2009. Okay. So I don't know how that jives with your understanding, but I, I'd have to look it up, but I, I think that was around the time when, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and this is what she admitted to. And I frankly believed her. And this was later on that she tell, tells me, told me a lot later on. Um, and uh, so she was with the, the two, the three of them lived together in a, a small, comfortable house in Boca. Um, and it was about a year that uh, my ex came to me and said, she just can't, can't take it anymore. Stephanie, you know, when, when um, my other daughter and my ex were out of the house, Stephanie would throw parties. She would, you know, bring in, guys she would bring in friends they would do drugs they would they would drink they would steal they would trash the place this happened on multiple occasions and you know I, my ex at that point 
said, you know, I just can't do this. You've got to take her. She asked me, she insisted that I take her. And in the way I see it now, and even then, she was attempting to save herself because she was beyond, she was un, unable to cope. And frankly, who can blame her? So uh, I agreed. And I was living in New Jersey at the time. So I remember Stephanie flying up, uh, one day just flying up and meeting me at Newark Airport. And I was driving back with her. And I had a plan at that point. I was going to send her. This is certainly out of order in the way I was going to speak about it, but that's fine. Um, I was going to send Stephanie to a boarding school right away because I didn't want to deal with Stephanie either. I could see what was happening. I didn't want to deal with her. And Stephanie, who was even before her um, involvement in drugs and alcohol, was a master at manipulation. And people will say, your audience will say, oh, yes, addicts have that ability. To be. I believe without any sound basis, I believe that my daughter put most addicts to shame in mm. terms of her ability to manipulate. I could be, I mean, I'm totally speaking off the cuff and I have no idea. It's your personal um, opinion. It's fine. Person, right. Uh, but that's how it made me feel. So she started manipulating me and said she doesn't, I mean, kicking and screaming basically about going to boarding. She didn't want to go to boarding school. And she convinced me by saying something like, well, if, just give me a chance here uh, in New Jersey. I'll be good and I'll be fine. And, you know, in a few months, if it doesn't work out, I will willingly go to boarding school. Uh, here's something I should discuss. So I agreed and, and I was, and to my fault, not to my fault, I'm basically an easygoing guy. And I was just not accustomed to this. I was not ready for this. It's not my fault. This is my nature. So I gave in on the boarding school. And moreover, what's worse, and it's what's, what's embarrassing now is that because I was easygoing, my I had a very liberal view of parenting, and I didn't know what I didn't know what I was getting into. And I really had, and I'm a smart guy, you know, I, I, I'm a smart guy about many things, but not about this. I'm, I'm I was terribly stupid, so I allowed her to, uh, within limitations, basically to have free reign. For instance, this is the stupidest thing that I did. I allowed her to bring people over to my apartment where the, both of us lived. And at one point, I allowed them to drink alcohol. And my thinking, my liberal, naive way of thinking was, she's 15, 16, this is what kids do. I will not be able to control her in any way, shape or form. Why try? I mean, try, if she's going to drink, at least she's going to be drinking in my house under my supervision. Right. I, I, I mean, I realize how maybe naive that sounds today. And there were many liberal parents who felt the same way at that time. Um, and that, it only took me a few times to figure out that, that it wasn't going to work because, you know, there were people who crashed and they brought more booze and things became out of hand. And, you know, after 45 minutes, it's like, okay, everyone out. 
Were they doing drugs as well, Alex, or just alcohol? Pardon me? Were they doing drugs as well or just alcohol? Not to my knowledge. Okay. Not to my knowledge. Beer. Beer pong. Beer games. Okay. You know, things that things that everyday young teenagers were doing and are still doing, I'm sure. Um I'm sorry, Alex. I, I hate to interrupt you, but but she was no. doing drugs in South Florida, or you didn't know yet? I, I didn't know it. I didn't okay. know at the time. Okay. I, I didn't know. I, I suspected that she might have been. I suspected, in again, in my naive way, that she was probably doing weed, but certainly drinking beer. And you know, I thought it was alcohol. And the reason I thought it was alcohol, which is one one brief story that occurred prior to their leaving for Florida. I, I found Stephanie when, when after we had divorced and split and living in separate homes, uh, my ex called me and said, Stephanie ran away. And this is sort of instructive. Stephanie ran away and it was pouring rain out. And so I got in my car and I, and I actually found her walking very fast in a huff on the street in the pouring rain with you know no raincoat, no umbrella, just walking who knows where, heading towards town. I suppose, the middle of town. So I picked her up and I, and, and there's a, there's another story before this. And I, and I, no, this is, I'm sorry. This isn't the story I wanted to, to uh, describe. Uh, anyway, I did pick her up and this was after what happened before. I picked her up and I threw her in the car and she's hysterical and wild. And she, we're going 40 miles an hour. She's opening the door and wants to jump out. Mm. So that was one of the last things that occurred before they went to Florida. Before that, um, uh, she was also, my ex also called and said that she doesn't know where Stephanie is. I found her in the center of town. And she was with five or six other kids of her age, 14, 15 years old at the time. Um, And they had been drinking. They had been drinking beer in the park. And the reason I know that is because their friends admitted it to me. And the friends were sort of happily bust. What you would normally see after drinking a couple of beers, they were sort of silly and giddy. And they were, you know, nothing out of the ordinary. It wasn't good, but it was what I would, you know, consider normal. My daughter was... She was acting absolutely in a bizarre fashion. She did not admit to any of the drinking. She wouldn't stop talking. She developed strange and bizarre and stories that made absolutely no sense. And she wouldn't stop. And again, she's in the car and she wants to jump out. And it's like, I'm thinking, this is like, why is my daughter different from the other five kids who seem to be happily buzzed? And they're looking at her like she's bizarre as well. What I later determined is that, and what she agreed to, my daughter, Stephanie, what she agreed to is that her reaction to alcohol was allergic. Mm. She was, it was not a normal reaction to alcohol. It affected her in a very bad way. So anyway, that's why- That can happen. I mean, that's, that's, that can definitely happen. I I guess so. It happened in my instance. Okay, so now you've got kids in your house and you, know that that's not going to work so what happened after no that? so then i sort of i banned alcohol um and i allowed kids to to come into the house without alcohol but they didn't listen they kept bringing in alcohol so finally 
that had to end. Um, Stephanie went to public school. I was very involved as a dad in public school. I saw counselors, I saw teachers. I did everything, quote unquote, right. At least I tried. No matter what I did, she was failing in school. She, in fact, I couldn't even get her to go to school half the time. We argued about it. I would yell at her, I'd shake her in the morning. She didn't want to get up. She was depressed, who knows what. I sent her to therapy. Um, one of the, one of the, I sent her to a psychiatrist, thinking that maybe she needed to go on some sort of medication. And the psychiatrist put her on Xanax, which later I learned turned out to be a horrible mistake because Stephanie at that point was using pills. And Stephanie later admitted to me, years later probably, when we talked about this, she says, yeah, this psychiatrist is off her gourd because she gave me Xanax. What did I do with the Xanax? At least I didn't use it. I peddled it off to something else. I didn't mix the Xanax with whatever I was doing. I was smart enough, she says, to know that. She was way ahead of the game. You know, so you don't know what you're getting into, which is kind of the, the theme of my the reason why I want to speak about these things. You don't know what you're getting into when you're dealing with this. You don't know who to trust. And it's beyond that. Um, so that was one instance. Uh, so she's failing out of school. I did send her to make a long story short, which is impossible, I understand it at this point. Um, I did send her to that boarding school after three months or so because things were just out of hand. She did not go willingly, but I sent her up there anyway, somewhere in Connecticut. That didn't work out. Uh, there she was using drugs. I don't remember what, but she was kicked out for drugs. I had no place to put her. I didn't think she was using anything serious, um, but I had no place to put her. She came back home. She went back to the same school. This is, now she's in high school. She's a sophomore, a junior, failing out, not doing well. She never did graduate high school. Ultimately, she did get a GED somewhere later on down the road, but she never did. Um, she never did uh, pass uh, graduate from school. The, the next thing that is of note is the thing that and you see how beautiful she is. And and here she is probably in in high school. I imagine. And she was very sort of taken with herself. She realized that she was attractive and she attracted boys. And so the one thing she felt that she was good at was attracting boys. And so that became sort of her mantra. And in that period, when she was after the boarding school, she found a boyfriend. I will call him Ben. It was not his real name. Frankly, at this point, I can't even remember his real name. <laughs> Um, and, and they had a, a, a codependent sort of relationship, which I didn't recognize at the time because I was not conversant in these things at the time. Uh, but he was a good guy. He was straight laced. He was intelligent. Uh, he was very wealthy because his parents were very wealthy. They were split up as well. Um, but Stephanie, I realized at some point 
was so codependent upon him that she really was addicted to, to this relationship and to this to this young man. But I, in my naivete, let it go because it allowed me to do my thing. I thought he was a good guy. I didn't think anything terrible would come of it. I didn't really think it through. I didn't know enough to think it through at the time. Um, and their, their relationship just became beyond codependent. I mean, it was just addictive. More on her side than on his, I believe. Um, they were sleeping together, not at my apartment as far as I knew, not that I allowed them in my apartment, but who knows. But I was very um, liberal and not beyond liberal. I was almost uncaring about what happened at that point. Uh, I allowed her, she stayed over at his house, at his mother's house. I assume that they were probably sleeping together there. God knows what Stephanie told his mother about me. I did not approach his mother, his father. Um, they went on for months like this. And um, one day, and one day that I'll never forget, you know, Ben came with Stephanie in tow to my house, to my apartment, and he announced to me that Stephanie had something to tell me. And she was bawling her eyes out. And it was at this point she said, uh, and he coaxed her on, she says, Dad, I'm addicted to heroin. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com, or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727 314 7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Sometimes the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. And wow. Yeah, and that totally threw me for a loop. And as that might sound stupid to some of to you, to some of your audience, but that's how sort of naive I was thinking that, well, that can't happen to me. Right. That can't happen in, in a, in a well-to-do suburb that can't have, I mean, I grew up, you know, thinking heroin was something without, without trying to sound judgmental. Something Homeless in the people do it under the bridge. Yes. And not not my girl. I mean, I could weed, fine. Weed might have even calmed her down, might have relieved her anxiety. Drugs. I mean, I knew people who. I mean, listen, I grew up and I smoked weed. Uh, I did hash. That was the extent of it. But 
Beyond that, nothing. And maybe I knew people who dabbled in cocaine at some point, but that wasn't my life. I couldn't imagine that. And so it, it floored me beyond the fact that I felt sad and guilty and all those other feelings that I felt, it totally was foreign and alien to me. So, you know, naturally at that point, okay, so she's got to go uh, to rehab. And in, in a week later, she did. But that week, that next week was horrendous. I mean, we were fighting, we were yelling. I actually struck her. Uh, neighbors called the police on us, on me. Nothing happened vis-a-vis -vis the police. But that's how st stressful it all sort of unraveled. Um, so she went to her first rehab. I forget the name of the rehab, but it was, it's located, I'm sure it's still there, it's located in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, and it was a good rehab, you know, got it on a recommendation. And it was of the rehabs that she's been to, and I'll get into that. Uh, it was one of the better ones. And there was a very good family or parental program that I, I went to for five days. And, um, you know, I'm sure she learned a lot. She paid attention, I'm sure probably did. And I, when I were there for the five days, and it was really very instructive. And I would recommend for people in this type of situation that you just find out that your, that your loved one is an addict of any sort, yeah, get them into rehab. Uh, it, it's, you know, there's lots of things that you learn at rehab that you could probably read online, but I didn't, you know, it's a lot easier just being there and touchy-feely and you're with your daughter, you're with your loved one, and there's a lot to learn. How long was the program, Alex? It was about 60 days, and I think okay. probably some of it, half of it was, um, half of it was paid for by insurance, and maybe I had to pick up the other half. That was so long ago. That's so water, you know, under the bridge. While we're on the subject of rehab, if you don't mind my, do you mind my getting on the bully pulpit at this moment? Probably not. <laughs> so what I will say about, about Stephanie after that is that um, the next nine or 10 years before her death. I'm sorry, Alex, you wanted to wax philosophic or you wanted to talk about rehab. It's fine. I, I will. I, I, I don't think I said it properly. Okay, no, I didn't you mean didn't, that no, you, you didn't couldn't. Me. I will. Okay. I, I was going to say basically that Stephanie was in and out of 10 rehabs, a dozen rehabs. And so here's my waxing philosophic about it. Um, like I said, I think it's great to go to your first rehab, maybe your second rehab, and there's something to learn. And there are classes that they give you and they talk about the psychology and they talk about the biochemistry and things about the brain that you would never think of and you would never know to, to ask. And so they teach you about addiction and that's all very important. But bottom line, in my opinion, and I'm not trying to insult anyone, certainly not you all or any of your audience, and it's just my personal opinion, but most rehabs I find are the same. Um, some, are, some are better than others. Some are fancier than others. Some have better therapists than others. Some may pay their therapists better. The facilities and grounds might be better in some than in others. But basically I see all of these rehabs the same. And I've been through with my daughter, I've been through all of them. 
and it and it, it gets down to what is it all about? What is it all about, Alfie? It's about money. So on the one hand, and I don't mean to be cynical, and it it would be nice to be hopeful, but I'm it's but I would like to be instructive or to sort of paint the opposite picture as to what might be expected, at least in my situation. I think unfortunately that a lot of rehab programs can turn into a revolving door, if I may add that comment onto what you're saying, um, especially since most rehab programs will only um, help someone as long as the insurance money comes in. And so if there is someone who cannot afford that second 30 days like you did with Stephanie, then the addict is basically kicked out after 28, 30 days, and it's not enough time. Precisely. Precisely the point, and even 60 days, and you're dealing with, you're dealing, I mean, you might be, one might be dealing with someone who has the emotional issues and scars of my daughter. Right. And so and even- And you're not gonna fix that in 60 days. No, you're not. You can get them off the drugs, but the drugs are the solution to whatever the underlying problem is. Yes, they're, they're self-medicating. Yeah. And so, and so a lot of this sort of burns me. And um, so, you know, later on, I was, you know, after, and Stephanie was ultimately diagnosed as being bipolar. And that, frankly, took 30 minutes and $400 by some doctor and he might have been fantastic and she probably was bipolar and he didn't need much time but it was sort of um interesting that it was like okay she's bipolar uh and we're going to put her on meds i was so, going to say that's the problem with a diagnosis like that is that then she ends up on meds and she's already got a problem with meds if you but will the, the meds when she was on them the meds she said helped her okay but the problem with being bipolar or on being on meds is that you could be helped and then you get cocky and then you go off the meds. And who knows whether she's on the meds or she's off the meds. And she'll tell you that she's on the meds. And frankly, when she died, she was telling me, oh, you're on the meds, you're doing them. Oh, yes, dad, every day I'm doing the meds. And pa, don't worry, I'm taking the meds every day. And when we cleaned out her apartment, we found reams of meds that were unused. So there you have it. Understood. Um, so, so how many back, rehabs did she do total? Was it 10? Is that 10 or 12? Tell her I, mean, 12. I, lost, okay. I lost count. Okay. I lost count. So after I learned that she was bipolar, and even before then, I knew that she suffered from emotional trauma. So I was looking for things what they call in, in uh, many uh, rehabs, they have what's called dual diagnosis. And pardon me for being cynical, but to me, that turned out to be a crock. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what is dual diagnosis? That they're able to handle not only the, the addiction, but the underlying disease. Like you said, how do you handle bipolar disorder? How do you handle uh, other um, mental syndromes in 30 days or in 60 days, just by virtue of having group sessions where you have an individualized session, maybe once a week? You don't do this, this but but they advertise, you know, but I was sucking it up. It's like, oh, well, I've got to find someone that's got dual diagnosis. But after 10 or 12, and after the result that I ended up with, um, 
rehabs, you realize that it's just not, there's just a lot of public relations going on, mm -hmm. to put it politely. Yep. And the, the ultimate problem in terms of the finances of medicine in general and of mental health is that you're dealing with, as you said, insurance companies who want to give you the least amount of coverage to save their money and um, rehabs who have very little financial incentive to avoid the revolving door. Yep. So... Um, so, Alex, she went to, let's say she went to, I'm just moving you ahead just a little bit. So she went Please. to 12 rehabs. Oh, was she sober for any period of time that you know? Yes, she was okay. sober. And it was usually after the rehab. And maybe she was sober for, you know, it, it, it was, I don't know if I mentioned this, but to me, it, it was like, um, what was I going to say? It, it was... Uh, like uh, Groundhog Day for for addicts, like it's like revolving door. She would go to rehab. She would go into a halfway house, three days or sixty days if I would spend the money. She would go into a halfway house. She would you know be sober. She would violate the rules of the halfway house, but maybe not in so, in so far as the drugs were concerned. She'd violate the rules, let's say, as bringing boys over or getting involved or or escaping. Who knows what? And then you know. Then she would live someplace else and I would be supporting her and trying to get her to get a job. And she'd try to find a job and then she'd lose the job. And then she wasn't finding a job. And it just, it was a revolve, but no matter where she was, it was this revolving cycle that never seemed to be broken until, and, and she, and she went through such horrors. She was raped. Mm. She, yes. Uh, she she was arrested. She was arrested for DUI. She was arrested for possession. She was arrested for possession with intent. She she got into accidents. She lost everything. She lost her goods. She lost her wallet. She lost the money. I mean, she was beaten up. I mean, there were so many bad things that occurred. And I was not with her at the time there. I was in New Jersey trying to cope with her because I had a life in New Jersey, and then I moved ultimately where I am now in Raleigh, North Carolina. Anyway, um, she was in jail. First, she was she did detention for a couple of times. She was in jail in South Florida. I had hired a lawyer for her. I was, you know, close with the lawyer. He was a good guy. He did a good job, and he he confided in me. He says, "Listen, I, I think she's going to do some real time now." unless you get out of here, get her out of Dodge, get her out of Florida. And so I agreed and she agreed. And so I actually, and this dovetails into the issue of rehabs, which I wanted to speak about most prominently. So I picked her up at the jail in South Florida where she spent 45 days and she was miserable, obviously, and sober. And I, we drove up from Florida directly to Raleigh. It's a horrible drive. And she didn't know what was going to happen. And I didn't tell her. And I had a plan. And now I had a good plan. Um, after so many years. So where I drove her to was a different rehab, a different sort of rehab 
that we have here in Raleigh, which is called in Wake County, which is where Raleigh uh, is. And it's a rehab called Healing Transitions. That's the real name of it. And it was first a homeless shelter, but primarily most of the people there were addicts and it was a rehab facility. This rehab facility is totally different from all the others. Hmm. And this is what I wanted to bring to the forefront to your listeners more than anything else that I've learned. This was a, first of all, it does not accept insurance. It is um, free to all the patients. It's supported by the local government, by Wake County, by the city of Raleigh, by caring businesses, by individuals, by donations. There is absolutely no insurance involved and they don't accept the dime. You have to qualify by being an addict or an alcoholic and uh, or homeless and, um, and living in Wake County. That's it. It's not a fancy facility. They have a, a, a separate a men's campus from a women's campus, which is necessary. And <clears throat> it's a one-year program. And it's run by the, I was the inmates, it's run by the patients themselves with, you know, direct supervision by specialists in the field, whatever they are, by master's degrees, people, and um, there's an executive director who is a business kind of guy. And so it, it, it's a wonderful concept. And Stephanie stayed there. And, and what do they do? It's a year program. And what do they do? The first couple of months is all they do is walk. They do a lot of walking and sort of getting stuff out of their system. But then ultimately they're working. They're working there, taking care of their themselves, taking care of, the facility and they're collaborating and they're working together and they do this stephanie stayed for seven months and she again manipulated me and convinced me for whatever reason to allow her to get out but after seven months she was doing so well and after seven months there she was sober and calm and the proof was in the pudding she after that she maintained her sobriety basically for 18 months. And what year are we talking about now, Alex? This is about 2000 and roughly 2015, 2016. Okay. She's 24, 25, let's say. Okay. She died, she was almost 27. Um, and this is one, parenthetically, I started writing my book because talk about hope. I had a lot of hope at that moment. I was over the moon. I was delusional with hope, I think, um, because she was doing so well. She was holding down a terrific job, I mean, a job, any job was terrific, but she was holding down a you know, a job in a trucking outfit where they really needed her. They loved her. She was doing, she showed how smart she was and how street savvy and how, what a salesman she could be in a positive sort of way. She was just doing well and she was healthy and she had a relationship that started off very well with an alcoholic who was sober for a good period of time and who came over to our house and he seemed to love her very much. And 
it was for a year or so or more, it was really a good relationship. And so everything was going along swimmingly. He relapsed, uh, and then he tried to get back on and you know, try to try to become sober again. I mean, there was things that un started to undo them. Then it came back on track. I was meanwhile writing my book. Uh, it must have been earlier than 2015 because it took me three years to write the book. Uh, I finished the book. Um, things started to unravel for her. I finished the book at the, at the start, just the beginning of, of the pandemic. So that was the, the early, probably January of 2020, before we really knew what was going to hit us vis-a-vis -vis the pandemic. At this point, Stephanie's life is beginning to unravel on account of the pandemic and her isolation and her forced isolation. And with being involved yet again, I mean, she swore him off a bunch of times, but being involved yet again with the same toxic relationship. And between the two, her life just unraveled where um, three months prior to her death, she overdosed and I found her sort of coincidentally, I was on my way over to her house in Greensboro, which is about an hour and a half from here. And I found her sprawled out, um, overdosed, unconscious. And I was just able to call, you know, 911 in time. And they, in front of my eyes, they pumped her with the Narcan and jerked open her eyes. And, you know, and I kept her that day. And it was probably the worst day of my life other than when she died. Um, was she back on heroin? Do you know? Yeah, yeah. Heroin okay. was, yeah. Okay. Heroin was, heroin was always. That was I, her I, drug I, of choice. Was always her drug of choice. Okay. Heroin. She did other things too, but heroin was, she snorted heroin. She injected heroin. I mean, it was always, she did. She was, another thing that, that boils my blood is, um, uh, what is the uh, uh, substance, forget the name, the substitute for um you know, trying to, they use it in detox. Methadone? Well, the substitute for methadone now. Suboxone? Suboxone, yes, Suboxone. She was on Suboxone for a time. She was off Suboxone. She was on Suboxone. She couldn't get, I mean, she had to buy Suboxone from her drug dealer. I mean, I'm a, not a proponent of Suboxone, although no. it, could, yep. it could work. It could work for some people. I'm so, and so it is so, so, before I get to my, my, well, anyway, three months later, uh, she overdosed again. I don't know. I assume it was heroin. I didn't get the toxicology report. She died. She may have committed suicide. I don't know. No one was there. And, um, and that was that. What boils my blood, getting back to sort of the state of medical affairs here, and the state of our country and our politics is when people talk about sort of mental health and um, when, you know, some young deranged person has an AR-15 and shoots up a school and kills innocents. I mean, it's beyond belief. And then politicians on both sides, politicians on the, on the right, We'll say, oh, well, you know, it's nothing to do with guns, it's, which is absurd. 
it's got to do with mental health and we just need to pour, you know, do more for mental health. And then we have, you know, people on the liberal side saying, oh, yes, we got to do more for men. Yes, it's guns, but it's also would need more mental health. But my mantra in life is the devil's in the details. It's like, what mental health are you talking about? Are you talking about Suboxone, which seems to be the government's um, leaning towards dealing with, the, with it, and why Suboxone? It's again, it's to me, it's about the money. And it's just substituting one drug for another. And that's yeah. never, ever, ever it going doesn't to work. work. No, it it's leads, not going mean, to work. It doesn't work. Yeah. And so, but the government, the good government leans towards Suboxone. Yep. Come on. Yep. And giving more to mental health in the present state of the mental, in terms of addiction, it is, it boils my blood when they talk about that. It's just so easy, but it is, if anything about this, problem it's not easy right and before i forget to say this to you i'm really sorry about stephanie i'm sorry that she lost her life it's why we do this podcast we have not lost someone to addiction but i don't want another parent to have to go through what you went through i just i don't want that it doesn't have to happen no. And I'm just as sorry as I can be about stuff. No, and I appreciate, I appreciate it, and it brings tears to my eyes. And um, I definitely appreciate that. And and I'm fine. I mean, I will never, you know, talking about it here and seeing her pictures now are very troubling for me. Obviously, I understand. And I gave uh, a similar sort of talk, uh, a written talk, in front of Healing Transitions you know, in front of those people, many of whom knew Stephanie. And I was bawling at the end of my, at, and I, and I did not cry very much. I mean, other than the, the night that she died. Um, so I have a life and I, you know, life goes on, but I don't want anyone else to suffer either. Right. It's, uh, it's just. Right. And I, I believe that you being willing to share Stephanie's story with us, that someone will be listening and maybe they will have seen the same behavior in their son or daughter. And maybe they will realize that, you know, they need to take a different approach. And maybe some of them are liberal like you were and they'll go, wow, that doesn't seem like that's the best decision to make at that time. So I think that the fact that you're willing to share her story i think is is huge because a lot of parents who go through what you went through they don't want to talk about it and they don't want to share it and that is unfortunate because i think when you share her story you are helping others and i'm helping myself help i'm not and it's that not too. people say you know when i wrote my book people asked me well it must have been cathartic well no it wasn't cathartic but i had something to say and that's why I want people to, I mean, not to plug my book in the end of this, but I'm going to. And it's not about money because I intend very much to lose money on this book venture. No one, no one as an author, unless you're Stephen King, will you make any money? Hmm. I, I'm aware of that. Um, but, I, but I had a lot to say beyond the issues of addiction. Yep. I mean, it, it gets into questions of the universe, and and questions of you know uh, God, and you, you talk about the twelve steps, and um, 
So I want people to read it because I want them to gain something from what I had to say. And that's the only reason. I'd like a million people to read it, especially people who are suffering in the way that I suffered. And they will. And the name of your book and where they can find it. Uh, It's called The Long Desert Road, and it's easily found on Amazon, you know, Barnes and Noble. But there are plenty of good reviews on Amazon. And, you know, um, I'd be thrilled if people would pick it up and, and get in touch with me and tell me what they think. And how do they get in touch with you? Uh, they can get in touch with it. They could go on uh, Amazon and there's probably, uh, there's also a website that's called thelongdesertroad.com. Okay. And on, on this probably, and they can go on Facebook and see, I have a Facebook page, The Long Desert Road, and I'm sure there is some sort of contact information. Awesome. Um, I'm happy to talk. And if, if, if um, my wife is right about anything about me, she says, you love to talk. So <laughs> I'm sure she's correct about that. Well, Alex, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Once again, everybody listening, it's The Long Desert Road by Alex Sorotkin. It's on Amazon. And if you buy it and you read it, get a hold of Alex and tell him what you thought. Love to, love to hear from them. Okay. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. Thank you for listening to the interview today. I think that Alex's story, it's very honest, it's very candid, it's very tragic, but I hope that somebody listening, one of you will go, oh yeah, I've been that way, I need to fix it. And hopefully you will fix it sooner rather than later so that you don't have to experience the same tragic outcome. We'll be back again next week, we'll have another interview. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.